Past, present, future, live. In-depth conversations and exclusive live performances featuring some of the most dynamic artists from the world of contemporary music. From Osiris Media, this is Past, Present, Future Live. I'm your host, RJB. This week, we talk with Ed Jurdy and Gordy Quist of the Band of Heathens. They have a new record coming out on September 25th called Stranger, which is their seventh studio album. Since forming 15 years ago in Austin, partially by accident, the Band of Heathens have made creative rock and Americana music that gained them accolades like the best new band in Austin in 2007 and a spot on the TV show Austin City Limits. We talked about their belief in live music, their unlikely friendship with Kid Rock, and most importantly, how their music has evolved over the past 15 years. After the interview, you'll hear Ed and Gordy perform One More Trip, South by Somewhere, and Black Cat. You can see the videos of all of this show's exclusive performances at youtube.com slash osirismedia. And you can find a Spotify playlist based on this episode in the show notes. We're going to get into the interview in just a minute. For you live music fans, I want to tell you about a brand new video archive that our partners at Jambase just launched. They've organized and tagged more than 90,000 live music videos by a lot of your favorite bands. You can go in there and you can search by song, by year, duration of song, the kind of video, and a lot more. It's taken a lot of effort to put this all together. You can check it out at jambase.com videos. And a quick word about our sponsor, Sunset Lake CBD. My wife started using the CBD salve this week for a sore back, and it definitely made her feel better. And when I was at the beach last week, I smoked some of their CBD pre-rolls. It was my first time using a pre-roll CBD. It was a relaxing feeling that left me clear-headed and motivated. This Vermont company grows CBD hemp that's 100% pesticide-free, and they use only organic fertilizers. To get 15% off your first order, go to sunsetlakecbd.com and enter the promo code PPFL15. And now, here's my interview with Ed and Gordy of the Band of Heathens. Enjoy. All right, I'm here with Ed and Gordy from the Band of Heathens. How's it going, guys? Great. Going good, man. Yeah. Good to talk with you. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for joining us. This is going to be fun. And, and the music at the end will be even more fun than the conversation, I think. We have a lot to talk about because you guys have a new album coming out on September 25th called Stranger, which we're going to talk about. And you guys have a cool formation story that we're going to get into. But the way we start this is to go all the way back and ask each of you guys, and maybe Ed, we can start with you. Sure. Um, what's your first musical memory? Um, it's funny you mention it because I was visiting my parents last week and my dad, he was like pretty ad- ahead of the curve with some stuff. And he bought like an eight millimeter talkie video camera, which is really cool film. So we were watching old films. I kind of like just started playing guitar like at two or three years old, just sitting around the living room, just kind of strumming. Um, and like, you know, I'd watch him play chords and then I'd, I'd kind of hear the sounds and we'd figure out between me and him, we'd figure out ways to put my fingers on the guitar so I could make the sounds because my hands weren't big enough yet. So that was like, that was one thing that I, like after seeing it, I kind of remember it now. And then uh, there's like a, uh, a birthday party, like my or my sister's third birthday party. And I sing a chorus of uh, Lucille by Kenny Rogers. And he's got that on uh, on videotape. And, and it's like sort of an Alvin and the Chipmunks version of that song. So those would be like two very early memories. 
that's an amazingly young. I have young kids and, and they, they have not come near an instrument yet. So it sounds like you were, you were pretty early on there. I was, but like most, I think unlike most kids who take to something at that young of an age, my parents, I didn't get into like the Suzuki method or, uh, or do any sort of virtuosic playing. It was just sort of something I like to do and would pick up in my own leisure. There wasn't anything very regimented, um, or anything about it, which in retrospect, I think is good. Cause it, I think it allowed me to have a love of it and have that develop in my own time as opposed to like being forced into being great at it. You know what I mean? Totally. Gordy, what about you? Do you have a first musical memory? I think so. Yeah. My parents and my dad in particular, like most of their generation, uh, the Beatles just like changed everything for them. And I remember watching the uh, Hard Day's Night movie and I was probably, you know, five or six years old and it just blowing my mind, you know, the concert footage at the end of the movie, um, just as a kid watching that. And, that. and all those songs had been part of the soundtrack of, of my growing up. But then like seeing it was something that really stuck with me. And from then on, it was pretty much like pictures of me as a kid holding toy guitars or fake guitars all the time. Um, and you just wanted to do that once you saw it? Yeah. Yeah. I just was like kind of obsessed with that. You know, there's like the magic that happens in your ears when you hear music. And then when you attach the visual, like, and the live thing, I don't know. Yeah. It made an impression on me. And then, and then I would say like after that in later years, uh, I grew up in, in spring Texas and, uh, same kind of area Lyle Lovett is from, you know, would see him riding his motorcycle through town or whatever, but mm -hmm. I went to go see one of his shows when I was really young. And then that blew my mind on a songwriting front. Like, oh, here's a guy who's really funny on stage, has the audience in the palm of his hand, and is able to connect on like all these different levels of, you know, the emotions in the songs and then comedy and, and just really a masterful songwriter and, and performer. Um, Ed, when you were growing up, it sounds like music was playing all over your house. Was it a pretty big musical family? Yeah, I mean, no one was like a musician per se, but um, we we didn't have cable until I was like in sixth grade or something. So it was sitting around with guitars and we had a piano in the living room, just singing songs. I remember like singing stuff like California Dreaming by the Mamas and the Papas, like House of the Rising Sun, Eric Burden's version of that, you know, and then like Gordon Lightfoot stuff and Jim Croce stuff and James Taylor. You know, I think after like the 60s transition, my parents got into a lot of... Uh, like 70s songwriter stuff so that was uh that was always something that was on a lot and then we had you know we had a record player and stuff so that would be a big I remember my mom cleaning the house on sunday mornings listening to abbey road back to the beatles thing again <laughs> um and then you know my sister and me getting records as a kid i remember getting thriller by michael jackson and doing you know coordinated dance moves to that in the living room the first cd that i ever got was born in the usa like when the cd format came out so i remember like each one of those like my first tape was like uh when i was five i got like live at leeds and creamed israeli gears nice so and i had like <laughs> again watching those videos going back i had this boom box like literally and i would carry it around with me it took like six of the d batteries you know and i yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> my parents would only buy me so many because i go through like those once a week you know i'd kill the whole thing so it's funny that, with these questions because i don't really think about this stuff much but it's like it's bringing back all this sort of nostalgia i'm interested in like teenage years because i think you you guys both sounds like we're just musical from the beginning and following music was there an album like when you were a teenager that really grabbed you or or something that kind of blew your mind in a way that wasn't just influenced by what your parents were listening to. Cordy, you want to start? 
Yeah. The teenage years for me, that's when the grunge thing happened. And it also happens to coincide with when I had been playing an acoustic guitar. My dad had taught me some chords and I had a Paul Simon and a Beatles songbook and was kind of uh, living in that world. But then I, I got an electric guitar and that's when the grunge thing was happening. And I remember the first time going over to my buddy Jake's house, he had a drum kit and then, you know, another buddy came over with a guitar and the first time plugging in, playing electric, I think it was like a Stone Temple Pilot song, you know, and it's like uh, stuff that I can't listen to now, although I, I have a soft spot for it, but like, <laughs> it's not what I go to, but, uh, but that's what was on the radio and MTV and I was ad- totally addicted to, to MTV, but um, that feeling of plugging in and playing music with other people, definitely that was the music that kind of I've, I first uh, experienced that and it definitely made a lasting impact. And Ed, it seems like you guys kind of developed on parallel tracks, but what about you on the on the album or, or artist? Yeah, I mean, you know, the whole old cliche about how guys get in bands to like pick up chicks and get laid and, you know, do drugs and party, mm-hmm. which is fine, you know, uh, but like both of us actually started playing music before. I mean, I was playing music before I had any concept of the fact that I was attracted to the opposite sex. Mm-hmm. Or, or attracted to anyone in any sort of amorous way. You know, I had friends and I have music and sports. So, you know, it's, it's funny, like this, this evolution really, you know, not to be cheesy, but it really did come out of a pure place um, insofar as just like a love of music. You know, I had, there was no other ulterior motivation. Um, it was just loving, loving playing music and playing in front of people. And then as far as like records that were big for me, most of my sort of like elementary school years was, was in the eighties. So there was a lot of hair metal, which my parents just fucking hated that stuff so much, you know, and every once in a while there'd be like a, a band would do like an acoustic ballad and they'd be kind of cool with that. Cause it would sort of harken back to their, the days of the songwriter with the acoustic guitar until the, every rose until has the, its thorn. Totally. Until the yeah. shredding metal solo would come in halfway <laughs> through the tune. Um, but then for me, there was a pretty pivotal moment. Like, um, I'm going to say it's like 1990, I got three things in quick succession. I got a Wilson Pickett greatest hits record. I got Van Morrison's moon dance. Oh yeah. Moon dance. And I got the black crow shaking moneymaker. And those three things for me, even to this day, like really kind of informed, like where I started going, you know what I mean? Like I, I liked the metal music cause it was on the radio and it was fun, but then it was just like, Oh, there's a whole nother dynamic, both like hearkening back to older music. And then like with the crows being a contemporary band, it was like, you can kind of see how all these things could go together and become something relevant and meaningful in your generation. You know what I mean? Um, so that was really cool for me. That was a big formative thing. So it sounds like you guys both kind of were pursuing music pretty seriously. How did you each make your way to Austin and eventually cross paths? I know that's probably what early two thousands, but what happened in between? How did you make your way to Austin? Well, I put out a couple solo records and touring a lot in the Northeast. That's where I grew up. I got married and my wife and I, we just kind of wanted to do something different. And I said, well, if we're going to move somewhere, what's important to me is going somewhere where I know there's the music's great and that's going to be inspiring for me to be around. And it was, we had sort of talked about San Francisco, which was like, we just couldn't afford to live there. <laughs> so that was crossed <laughs> out quickly. It was kind of between Nashville and Austin. And I had been to Austin a couple of times and really loved it. And just generally kind of like the music scene there and the way music was done, just kind of by the artists for the artists really appealed to me. So that was it. Like we went down on a visit, looked at places, found a place to rent, packed our stuff and moved down there. And that was in like 2005 and um, immediately, like immediately fell in love. It was everything that I had hoped it would be and more, you know, um, it was, it was really magical. It was great. 
That's awesome. And you were making solo records and, and intending on continuing to make solo records, or were you hoping to come down and find people to collaborate with? Well, I mean, even within the solo projects, there was always a lot of collaboration. Playing music with other people, I, my whole MO with it has always been like, try to find people who you, you like what they do and you collaborate with them. Mainly what that means is just letting them do what they do. So in my case with solo stuff, it would just be like bringing in people I liked and they would inform mm -hmm. the music I had. I would create like a framework for what I wanted it to be and then just sort of, you know, turn people loose. So yes, I mean, to answer your question, the aim was to kind of keep uh, doing solo stuff and, and find some great people to collaborate with and, you know, have, have a bigger sort of scene to, to pull from. Nice. And Gordy, what about you? What was your road to Austin? Um, well, in between those teenage years and moving to Austin, I actually was probably way more into sports than uh, music, at least equally. But uh, from a time perspective, uh, living outside of Houston, like, football is everything. And I played football in high school and then in college. I was in a band throughout that whole time, but the band was always kind of, you know, secondary and it was my, my outlet for fun. But in college, that's where I met actually our, our keyboard player in the band, Trevor Nealon. Uh, we met on a recruiting trip uh, to college and we played college football together and had a band the whole time we were there. And so when that all ended, the band broke up and then we were like, well, let's get back together. Where do we want to move? And, and we moved to Austin, and that lasted about a year before half of those guys were like, I'm out of here, you know, homesick or, or whatever, and, and just wanted to do other things. So that's when I kind of started doing, I had done a solo record already and was kind of doing the folk singer thing. And, uh, and then that's kind of how I ended up at this club, Momos, where the heathens kind of formed on accident. Yeah, can you? Does one of you guys want to tell us the story of the the accidental meeting or formation? Yeah, I mean, the thing to do back then in Austin was to get a residency and see if you can build a following by playing every week at the same time at the same club. And so there was a, a really great club that it's no longer around uh, called Momos that was just like the scene. It was a, a, the place to hang if you were playing the kind of music we were into. And it was actually a pretty eclectic scene, a different nights, different styles of music. But we all ended up on the bill one right after another. There were four four songwriters on Wednesday nights. And I think two guys were there, had been there for a while. And then I jumped in. And then when Ed moved to town, he was kind of the fourth one that completed this. Like we just had a weird chemistry that was really great. And we would sit in with each other and kind of be there all night, even though you had only one hour of the, mm. of the evening, but, but everybody would, you know, Ed would play guitar or play keys in, in my band. And, uh, it was the same drummer in all four bands. And so that kind of morphed into, well, let's just play one, two and a half hour set or one, two hour set instead of four separate sets. And we'll all be on stage together, singing harmonies, doing the things that we were kind of accidentally discovering just kind of for fun in, in the individual sets. We called that the Good Time Supper Club, and that was kind of what we called that Wednesday night jam uh, after it morphed into being kind of one house band. And and it was, I mean, it, they, these nights, there was a ton of tequila. We were, they, we, everyone was hammered. There were no rehearsals. It was very loose, train wrecks <laughs> happening all the time. And I feel like that's what people liked about it was, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, no set list and, and learning songs on the fly, pulling up, uh, you know, oh, hey, I see so-and-so in the crowd. Like, why don't you get up here on drums? And it was very collaborative. It was really fun. And eventually that, it showed up in the newspaper as the heathens one Wednesday. We showed up and we're like, wait a minute, it was just double booked. You know, is there some other, what's going on here? And, and uh, we think, 
we have some suspicions of who it may have been, but it was either a booking agent or the club owner or somebody thought it would be funny to call us the heathens. <laughs> and we realized, oh, it's not another band, it's us. And so that name ended up kind of sticking. So <laughs> kind of weird. And then we took it on the road and here we are 15 years later. Yeah. You know? Ed, for you, was it hard for you guys, from your perspective, to like go from singer-songwriters sort of solo guys, even though you all played with a lot of musicians, but to go from that into a band, was that a hard transition? No, because we had both played in bands before. And I think we grew up with the aesthetic of like, I mean, I love solo. I mean, I love Neil Young and I love Bob Dylan. And, you know, I mean, I love solo artists as much as anything, but, you know, ultimately there is definitely a magical component of putting a group of people together with a common goal and just like wanting to get together and just be great. It is, I find it so fascinating. A couple episodes, I talked to Nick Perry, who who um, we were talking about his new record, and he made this point because he was in a band that toured with Motley Crue and stuff when he was 16, and, and then it kind of ended. And he made this point, which is obvious sort of in retrospect, but how hard it is to get a group of people together to actually form a band. I think people who don't know much about it are like, yeah, just find some people to play with and form a band. But to be able to do that, have success, and be together 15 years later or 30 years later, whatever, is such an is such a rare thing. It's got to be one in a million. I mean, do you guys attribute that to fate? How do you think about that being like in this very rare position? To me, the, the closest analogy is that you meet a lot of people in your life. You have a lot of acquaintances, and you have a lot of good times hanging out with people. And but meeting someone that becomes a lifelong friend or someone that you really like connect with that you want to keep going back to to talk to and and uh, share your life with that's you know it's very rare and like you said in the same way it's like I guess you just sort of have to be open to recognizing when these things happen and like for me with this band and with Gordy specifically because he and I have been the only two have who have survived this whole journey all 15 years of it you know I think we both recognize in each other like a common vision for what you know what we want to do with music and what we think we can do with it and how how we're able to do it by working together you know and I would say as far as like the band and, and making it last. And, and it kind of all ties in. In the early days of the band, Ed and I, I think, after doing this relaxed thing on Wednesday nights, there was a point where we, we made a studio record. after make, We did two live albums first, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we made a studio record. And, and I think of all the guys that were in the band initially, Ed and I certainly connected. It was much easier for the two of us to write together. And we also, I think, saw something long-term, saw some potential in the band that we took pretty seriously uh, at a certain point. It was kind of like, all right, you know, like this is a real band. Let's do this. There's like a certain point when you find the right guys. And it's like, was it Nick that was saying it's hard to put a band together when you find those, the right people where it's like musically you're after the same thing, but everyone's bringing something different to the table. You just got to respect everybody. It's like, hey, one guy wants to move to L.A., like, okay, can we make that work? Like, yeah, let's, yeah, it's gonna, it kind of sucks for the band or it's hard, it makes things harder or more expensive, but it's like, yeah, let's all, we believe in this thing. And it's kind of like a marriage. You like kind of commit to making it work through the ups and downs and the compromises in the, you know, in the name of keeping it going, you know. So in 2007, you guys were voted the best new band in Austin, which is a big deal given the music scene. And then 2008, you did your first studio album, which you mentioned, which was actually after two live albums. But on that studio album, you had Patty Griffin and other people on it. I mean, it sounds like this journey was pretty wild, at least from like a taking off perspective. And you guys have both been playing music since you were 
very young. Did it feel like you were on this journey that you'd been working up to since you were little kids at that point? Yeah, I mean, I think so. It was pretty heady. You know, what's interesting is I think that was kind of an extension of what we experienced in the first iteration of the band when we were doing these Wednesday night super loose things. I mean, we started, there was no one coming to these shows. And then like within a few months, it was like, it was packed every week. And it was just kind of like, what we didn't, we didn't do anything. You know what I mean? We weren't like actively promoting this or telling everyone. It was just kind of like, you know, it was resonating with people. So as we kind of went through stuff, it was like, you know, so we did these two live records and then we met Ray Wiley Hubbard and he said, Hey, I want to produce your first record. And we're like, wow, Ray Wiley Hubbard's great. That's cool. So if he <laughs> likes what we're doing, that, that must mean we're doing something good. We think what we're doing is really good. So yeah, let's go do the record. And, and, you know, um, again, like the accolades and stuff for interest, like it was, it was obviously cool to win the Austin music awards and it, you know, it was cool to get good reviews and get great press and stuff. But ultimately it was kind of like, as we were getting further into this and doing the work, it was like, wow, we're, this, this band's getting better. Like this, this can, this is just like the tip of what we can do. I mean, this could be, this could be really great. You know what I mean? So, and I think like, if we can keep doing great work like that, we feel that it'll be something sustainable. For me, that was, that was always the goal. It wasn't about, you know, getting in a jet or a limo or whatever. It was like, if we could just make this record, pay for this record, go out on the road, make some money playing, and then make enough money to make another record. That's like, that seems like something we could keep doing that's sustainable, you know? And then ultimately we would achieve our goal of getting to play music as our livelihood. And that'd be the only thing we focus on. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? We're modest in a way, as far as like what we were trying to accomplish, you know what I mean? So like, although in one thing, it seems like some stuff happened fast and it was overnight. Like you mentioned, like this was a lot of years in the making, you know? So it was like, when it, when it happened and when this band started hitting and it was successful, it was like, I could recognize that, oh, I've never done this on my own. Or I've seen other people I know have this be successful and have things go to another level. And I can recognize like, oh, I'm in the middle of this right now. This is, this is a great opportunity to be a part of something very cool. I would also add, I think the amount of help and luck that we've had from the beginning is something you can't necessarily create or count on but you just kind of do your thing you work you work at it we always believed in what we were doing and the mentality was all right like the next time we come back to this town let's hope there's more people here than there are tonight like every time we come back we want to see more people coming because that means we're on to something and every record we make let's just do whatever we have to do to be able to make one more record and always be able to make one more and that was this kind of like short-term view that we believed if we just kept our eye on the short-term prize there that it would add up to this long thing. And um, it's really weird, like along the way, the right people just appear at the right time to help you. It's like in the early days, there was a, a couple of the Patillos that really helped us put our first live stuff together. Paulo Vasey, this cl club owner who's a friend of ours at Momo's, he was like, hey, I'll help manage you guys because you guys need a booking agent and I'm going to make it my job to find you guys a booking agent. And bam, then you have a booking agent. And then all these people have come on board at the right time to kind of keep, you know, propelling the band as we, you know, are able to like, all right, let's write better songs. Let's get better as a live band and uh, make better records. So I don't know. It's, it's really weird. I, it, at times when I look back, it's like, wow, you know, how, how has this, how did we get so lucky to get to do like the Austin city limits TV show in 2009? I mean, that was crazy, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. but just, it's weird. Luck. You know? <laughs> I was gonna. I was actually gonna ask how much of it you think is like commitment, hard work. How much of it is luck, and how much of it is just you know making good music. I assume it's a combo of all three. But it's interesting when you think about all those elements. Maybe there are other elements too. But it takes a lot to 
strike the right balance. Whatever you're doing, there's going to be some like inflection point where you're creating some more noise or you start to climb a plateau in your career or, you know, that could be at the beginning. It can be in the middle. It, it can be wherever. I um, mean, then it's sort of like to continue doing it. I've recognized that what that really involves is just continuing to do it. Like, like Gordy had mentioned, there's going to be ups and downs. There's going to be, you know, there's things that aren't sexy. It's like, no matter however you envisioned this was going to be as a career, it's not, it's not that at all. Like, I thought I knew everything that was going to happen. And like, it, you just have no fucking clue. I mean, it's like, there's really a lot of happenstance and a lot of, a lot of weird stuff goes on. Like, you know, relationships with people get weird. Like, like there's, there's a lot of weird stuff, you know, um, just like everyone deals with in their life. But, you know, I think the love of music and the motivation to want to just keep getting better at that, to write more songs, to play more shows, to make more records, like that's the only thing that's really ultimately interesting at the end of the day. And so you guys, as you were making these records, you were obviously touring a lot more, but what was the scene like in Austin in the late 2000s? Were there any other bands that you all learned from and watched and hung out with? It seems like there's hundreds and hundreds of bands, but what was the scene like? Any, any recollections of kind of that time from that perspective? I don't remember anything. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. Gary Clark played at uh, Antone's every week. You know, he was like 17 or Hmm. just amazing guitar player. You know, you had had Ray Benson from asleep at the wheel coming, playing shows, Charlie Sexton, you'd be doing shows at the Continental. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, you know, like you said, there's so many bands. And I will say the one cool thing, I mean, not the one cool thing, there were many cool things, but something that I always found really endearing about Austin was that there was always a very community-oriented feel and a very supportive ecosystem. You know, like if if someone who had been doing it for a long time came and saw your band and they liked you, there was it was like no pretense. It was just like, you guys are really good. Let me know if there's anything I can do to help. I would love to be a part of what you're doing any way I can help out, you know? So I think that's always been my takeaway of the Austin music scene. It was like, it really wasn't very competitive. It was very, like, very nurturing and very, very supportive, uh, both from a musician standpoint, but also like from just the people that lived in Austin, like people that lived in Austin love, they just love music. You know what I mean? Like, and they would be going to see music every night. And, you know, our band was just one thing that they would be going to see. And they would always you know, I'd always talk to people and they'd be like, yeah, you got to, do you know this band and this band? You got to check these guys out. I mean, it's it, like, we're really lucky. We really, to me, there was a sweet spot we really hit there. You know, it's it's something you can explain, but whenever I see people that were kind of hanging out during that time, we just, you know, you start talking about it and it's just like, it picks up, like hmm. we just stopped the conversation five minutes ago, you know? Yeah. It does seem different from like New York. I mean, I know New Orleans has a similar thing to Austin in that way and that it's like a community and I guess Nashville probably does too, but Austin's like a little bit more off the path, right? It's not like you're in New York or LA, like really competing hard for whatever people are competing for. I think the reason, if I were to boil it down to one reason, I think it's because, and this is a a positive and a negative, but there's not a whole lot of music industry in Austin or New Orleans. It's all artists. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the detriment of the artists, right? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a problem in, in terms of like these great artists, man, it'd be great if there were publicists here. And, and there are some and booking agents and all those things. And, and not to say there are none, but uh, those other music cities, LA, Nashville, New York, it's definitely industry people are driving that. Um, and then artists come to that you know, almost like sharks, you know, trying to get a piece of what, you know, I know oh, I need an agent and do all these showcase shows, which are terrible, which is like, they're, but, but <laughs> in Austin, it was always like, there are music fans and there are artists and it's the live music capital, you know, whether that name is 
manufactured by some marketing company or whatever. But it, but it, when we were coming up through the city, it truly was the case. And, and I'm grateful for that. I, I honestly feel like our band is a, a little microcosm of what the Austin music community was at the time. It was super collaborative. It was competitive, but only in like a, like trying to like, you know, you want to one up people artistically like, and just blow people's, you want to do something cool to like impress your friends. You know, it wasn't like we're all competing for this one spot on this booking agency and we're going to stab someone in the back to get there. It was all collaborative. And that's kind of what the, the band was born from that scene and that attitude. And, and I'm grateful for it. To draw a parallel, like if Nashville would be like getting together at 10 a.m. for a cup of coffee to do a writing session, and in in, in that time Austin would have been like, hey, let's meet at like 4 o'clock at Polvos, which is a great Mexican restaurant. Let's have a couple margaritas, smoke a J, and then we'll go back to your place and work on some tunes. You know what I mean? It's like <laughs> yeah. the work's still getting done, but just like the vibe of it and, you know, the approach to things was just, was it was great. I Like, I mean, I, I, I'm maybe romanticizing it a little bit, but I don't think too much because it was... It really was a golden. It was golden. For sure. <laughs> that sounds pretty good. Um, all right. We're going to get into the present kind of period and, and talk about the upcoming record. I'm just going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. So in 2013, you released an, an album that's mostly acoustic, um, that feels a little bit different, I think, because it was pretty different Sunday morning record. You guys had personnel changes, kids, it sounded like life changes. Is that as much of a, like a milestone in, in your minds as, as I see it going through your albums? It was, but for, for more reasons than that, even. I mean, the band almost ended uh, the year before. A couple of the founding guys left the band and... It was Ed and myself and Trevor, our keys player, we kind of looked at each other like, hey, do we do we still want to do this? And is it still the Band of Heathens, you know? Mm. And um, it was uh, all those things, years of heavy touring, people having children and getting married and all those things kind of that. I mean, that's why the, the splinter kind of happened. You know, a lot of guys were just tired and uh, wanted to do other things. And so... I think that record was us kind of saying, let's try to put this back together and see what the band is going forward. And it was a really personal record. The writing's a lot more personal. And Ed was kind of in the middle of, of moving from Austin to Asheville, which was a big change and kind of scary because at the time everyone had lived in Austin um, the whole time with the band. And uh, Ed already had a, a daughter and, and my wife was pregnant and with my first kid. So... Yeah, a lot, lot of change. We were listening to super mellow acoustic music, and so we're like, hey, let's make, let's make a record that kind of sounds like what we're into right now. And uh, I think critically, like in the press, I think it was maybe well-received, but our fans were like, what is this? And who are those guys? <laughs> Who's that drummer? Who's that bass player? You know, it was kind of like, who is this band, and why does it sound so different? But as kind of the band has now, I mean, now the band has been around longer post that period than it was before, and so I think... The, the record has aged well, you know, and it's one of my favorites, but um, yeah, it was kind of weird at the time. Do you remember when that record was released, how you guys felt, um, maybe in the lead up to the release and then once it was out there? Yeah, I mean, I felt great about it. I thought it was the best thing that we had done. And it, Or let me rephrase that. I mean, that was the best thing we could have done at that point in time, you know, and I think like all artists, whatever you're doing, whatever you're doing in the moment is always the best thing you've ever done, you know? 
but I loved it. I thought it was really, it was a great record. And what was interesting is like, I feel like the first tours that we did right after that record, we, we had built up a lot of momentum going into that. So it was kind of an interesting thing where like, there was a lot of people coming to the shows and they were still mostly jazzed about what was happening, but they were, like Gordy mentioned, there was a little confusion with some of the material. But then there was also this thing where like people would say, hey, I heard your, the record and it's like really mellow, but then you guys played this stuff live and we love it and it sounds like what you do. And I was like, well, yeah, that's, this is what we do though. We make, we, we're pushing ourselves to try to do different stuff. We're going to play stuff live and it's going to sound different than it sounds when we <laughs> recorded it. Um, but yeah, to, to Gordy's point, like I, I felt great about the work. I thought we did the best job we could do. You know, it maybe wasn't met with the immediate rousing unanimous consensus. But the other thing that that was a very valuable lesson in learning that once you do the work and you you put the time in and do the best you can do, you just got to keep moving forward. Because now, you know, fast forward seven years later, that's a record that a lot of fans love. And um, they ask us to play those songs all the time. And it's just like, oh, okay, so, you know, this is just about continuing to move like a shark through the water. You got to keep eating, you know, you got to keep, got to keep killing or in our case, not killing, coming up with ideas and new ideas and just keep advancing the thing along, you know? I think it's interesting as from a music fan perspective, I'm a big fan of fish and I see this a lot with music fans of different bands. As a fan, you want the band you love to like do the thing that they did. And the band is always pushing forward to the next thing. It's a give and take, I think, between the band and the fans. But at the same time, every artist I've ever talked to is like moving forward. Nobody wants to go back and make a record like the last three, right? You, and you guys are saying a similar thing. But fans sometimes just want what they're familiar with. Do you guys like see that as something you have to balance? I mean, we have a pretty diverse catalog, I would say. It's uh, maybe for that reason. We, we're trying to do different things. And there are certainly factions of people who love the band who love... I love this era of the band and I love this mm -hmm. era of the band. And um, I think that's cool. Certainly not really interested in going back and trying to recreate those things. But, uh, you know, I think it would be boring to try to like remake the same. I'd rather re-record those same songs differently mm -hmm. than try to write new songs, but make them sound like that, you know? Yeah. Do you think you're right though, RJ? Like, like a band like Fish is a great example, you know, where people were like, when 94 was the year or like, you know, 97, they started doing like the longer, funkier jams. That's cool. And it's just, but that's the beauty of it. It's like sort of, and from my perspective and from the artist's perspective, it's like our job is just to create stuff and put it out into the world. And then after that, it's really out of, out of our control. It's kind of up to people to decide what they want to do with it. You know what I mean? Like, and if you ask, if, if you ask any band, like what their favorite thing is, I can guarantee you it's going to most likely be different than what like the fans favorite thing is. You know, it's always the thing where like people are like, you guys were great tonight. And it's like, no matter what you think about the show, you should always just say, thank you. I'm glad you made it out because it's like, you don't want to, you don't want to ruin someone else's interpretation of what's great. Cause you thought it sucked or what, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, yeah. and that's what I love about music. You know, it's like, you share this thing with someone else. It's like, and they have their own experience with it. And that's, I know I have with other, listening to other music, you know what I mean? And I wouldn't want to tell like someone that I loved, I love something like, yeah, man, you know, that, that really wasn't our best moment or whatever. I was like, well, no, that was my best moment with you. Why would you take that away from me? You know? We do have to talk about the new album, The Stranger, which comes out on September 25th. We, we skipped over a little bit there, but um, I do want to ask you after we talk about this album about Kid Rock, because I think we have to talk a little bit about Kid Rock. Um, but let's talk about this album first. 
did this come together before COVID, before the lockdown? Like, what was the timeline for it? And, and did you have to adjust things along the way with release or recording or production? How did that all work with the timeline? We had been kind of demoing songs. Everyone would fly into Austin about once a month for, I don't know, maybe a, almost a year where, hey, every month we're going to record maybe two or three new originals and a cover or two originals and two covers, just kind of like to always be working and be recording. And and so we kind of had a, a bunch of these tunes done almost in the form that could be released as a record. But we, we had, we've been a fan of Tucker Martin, the producer we ended up working with for a long time. And through our management, it, it turned out, Hey, he, he was interested in, in doing some recording. So we booked two weeks in Portland a few months before the, the lockdown happened and, and the pandemic hit probably as things were just starting to boil in Asia or right before that. So we made the record and kind of just wanted to go off someplace where we didn't have any personal connections. No one had friends or family. And we were holed up as a band by ourselves for two weeks. And we've never recorded like that. We've always mm. been somewhere where we had a family or friends. And, you know, it's it's funny that we chose to like go isolate ourselves to make this record, just to see what happens. But, you know, knowing that we were about to enter a period of extreme isolation, I don't know that we would have done the same thing, but it was great. You know, new environment, uh, working with, with Tucker, who is a total stranger to us at like walking in day one of recording. We had never met him before, just talking to him on the phone. And so, yeah, we, we made the record and then kind of went through the process of putting the team together. We've always put our records out independently. And so we hire a radio team and a publicist. And that always takes time, uh, putting that team together. So kind of had the record and started working on the artwork and doing all that. But then this hit, we, we kept the release date. It's always been, we were shooting for September. But, uh, you know, we had a big tour plan for the fall, you know, and we didn't really get together to make any music videos or promo. But we've kind of just been embracing what we can do, uh, trying to create and stay creative in the lead up to the record. Yeah, we're just going to plow forward and use it as an experimental time to play with stuff online and see see what we can do without the touring machine. Let me just go back to Tucker Martin for a second, because he, for people who don't know, he's worked with tons of artists from Roseanne Cash to The Decemberists to, you know, My Morning Jacket. I mean, he has a long list of works. What does a good producer do what does that contribute to the process from your perspective? There's a bunch of different answers to that. You know, some producers are really great at picking songs and rearranging songs. Some are great with putting a band together and have they have a crew. Tucker, he's really great sonically. And he's a really great engineer and just gets really interesting sounds. And then another big part of it, I think, is just the vibe and the the attitude and and personality that you bring to a session and because no one's in isolation you know we're all affected by the people we're around the weather the food everything kind of plays into the music and um tucker just has a really easygoing way about him and he listens and is never heavy-handed with his opinions he kind of like gets what he wants out of you softly you know takes his time kind of hearing people's ideas. And then, I don't know, it's cool. And he, he's fun and isn't afraid to take chances and push the limits uh, sonically on something until you say, oh, that might be a little too much. You know, he's like, cool. I was just trying to push that to the point where you said it was too much. <laughs> <laughs> All producers kind of have a different, you know, set of strengths. 
And I would say Tucker's mixing and engineering and personality are really kind of what drew us to him. A producer to me is almost like, it's almost an additional member of the band or like, so whatever, you want to have your record produced by X, Y, or Z. It's like, because they, their records sound a certain way too. You know what I mean? And like, like Gordy mentioned, like Tucker has this aesthetic with his mixing and his engineering where it's like, oh, this sounds like the band of heathens, but there's this new element here mm-hmm. that's kind mm-hmm. of like done something new and cool. And that's, again, like that's something that's very interesting to us as far as, you know, from record to record, wanting to, wanting it to, you know, there's always a fundamental element to your, to the musicians and to the band, but then there's also like, oh, what's, what else can we do? What's something else interesting? And in this case, that was, that was the case for sure. Congrats on getting it out there. I have a couple more questions and we'll let you guys go. Can you tell us the story of your friendship with Kid Rock and how that kind of came together? Because I wouldn't put you two and Kid Rock and like, I wouldn't think of you guys as in the same category, but apparently there is a story there. Well, he definitely does like vintage rock and roll. And I, I think that, you know, for lack of a better categorization, we that's sort of where we, we end up falling into that, that world. Um, we first got... Uh, on his radar my phone started blowing up i was getting a bunch of texts like and someone's like do you guys know uh kid rock and i was like no i mean no not at all i don't know kid rock and i said why they said well he's on the howard stern show right now and he's talking about your band how much he loves you guys and i was like oh that's kind of cool so we had our manager at the time reach out to his people and say hey like that's really that was really nice of you thanks we would love to send you some records and some some t-shirts whatever you know just kind of bands we always you're like trading swag or whatever Mm -hmm. um so then uh, fast forward a couple years, or maybe a year, we got invited to be on one of his music cruises, which he does every year, the uh, Chillin' the Most music cruise. And um, honestly, that was it. He had us on the cruise, and uh, we, we just started hanging out, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we hit it off. You know, we just got along really good. He's a really, you know, despite all of the, the public image and whatever, he's a very, he's the most unpretentious person you'd ever meet. You know what I mean? He's mm-hmm. a very down to earth Midwestern, you know, he has the blue collar aesthetic, you know, um, for sure. Um, so yeah, we just, we just started talking about music that we liked in common and that's sort of where it began. And then we ended up being his backing band on a record. You know, he had us up in Detroit do a studio for like a week, which was a blast. We had a great time. He ended up uh, co-opting one of our songs, uh, making it his own song which sounds more nefarious than it maybe is. Um, but he was super cool about that too. I mean, yeah, you know, he's just sort of been like a benevolent presence in our life more than anything, I think. And, you know, become an ally of the band and, and a, uh, and a friend really. He's just, uh, he's, he's fucking hilarious. I don't, I mean, you know, and like you said, I think it's sort of, um, it's an unexpected match, you know, but kind of in the same way when, uh, you know, when, when fish called him up to sit in with them in, uh, in Vegas one time, you yeah. know, and he actually, he actually was telling us a story about that. That was hilarious too. So, you know, he's just like, literally like if you're going to have a party and have a couple of beers and hang out with one of your friends that you grew up with, that's literally like if they had become a rock star, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's who they would be. And it's great. <laughs> and that's what's great about him. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's good to hear in contrast to the public persona. He sent you some kind of gift after, um, <laughs> after you guys did a session. Yeah. You know, he had this amazing, well, like on the second day, someone was like, man, did you see the toilet in that room? I was like, what are you talking about? And apparently this is toilet. I took it for a ride, but it, it's amazing. It has a, a heated seat and then <laughs> it has a bidet where it, it'll wash, it'll wash your asshole when you're done. <laughs> and, uh, and you can make the, the water hot and cold. You can make it pulsate. Then there's a front wash. It's this amazing toilet. And I was like, Bob, that thing's amazing. He goes, yeah, I know it'll change your life. 
I bought one for everyone in my family. So when they take a shit, they think about me. <laughs> and uh, we were there for about a week. And, uh, and then we had to go on tour in Europe for about a month. And when we got home from Europe, there was like three huge boxes on each of our front porches. And there was a note that was like, you know, hey, thanks for, for recording with me. You guys are the shit in the studio. And, uh, you know, Bob. So he sent each one of us one of these amazing toilets. It's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, it's amazing. And, yeah. and like he said, every time we take a shit, we think about <laughs> yeah. it still. You know? Yeah, That is quite a legacy. All right, I just want to ask you guys about the future quickly before we let you go. You're putting this album out there. Where are you guys putting your creative energy at this point, given the, the lockdown and, and everything going on? Are you guys writing more music? Are you taking time to, to chill? Like, Where's your creative energy going? There's been no chilling. No There's chilling. been uh, some writing, a lot of collaborating remotely, which has been great. Uh, we're doing a weekly live stream called the Good Time Supper Club. That's on Tuesday nights, and we've been doing that every week since the pandemic started. Um, and one of the portions of the show is the thing we're calling remote transmissions, where uh, we have a guest every week, and every week we're creating a new tune with the guest. It's been cover songs, but uh, mm-hmm. that's been really fun, just getting to collaborate with some people who we're friends of and fans of. You know, so we've been um, we've been really active creatively, which I think has helped keep our sanity a bit. You know, I'm not really sure what we would be doing if we didn't have that. Gordy, anything to add on that front? No, I mean, honestly, just trying to not be down about the fact that touring isn't happening uh, by just, we've been so busy with this live streaming world. I mean, Ed and I do a bunch of personal concerts every week. So we have this thing, we do personal shows via Zoom for people and we do, I don't know, 10 or 15 of those a week sometimes. And then we do the band live stream on Tuesday nights for with everybody in the band. And so we're, we're staying really busy and trying to create video content and learning how to be a better interviewer because we have guests on. It's like, all right, we, we got to like guide this thing and ask interesting questions and do research and learning about video cameras. And it's a whole new world. And you guys both have great setups, though by the way. Thank you. We're, we're <laughs> grateful. We actually have some, some fans that have like, Hey, what can we do to help you guys? Like, you know, and they've, they've helped us with some of this stuff. Again, it's like people come out of the woodwork to help, to teach, to like show us how to figure things out. And we're just kind of diving in really trying to embrace the live stream thing. Cause it's really all we have, but also, I'm curious what parts of this are going to make its way into the recording studio. And this is all done and we'll keep, you know, maybe keep doing a a monthly live stream or, I mean, parts of this is really fun. Uh, we've, we've kind of been trying to uh, have a good time with it. And so I think some elements of this connecting in this very strange way will probably make its way into, you know, whatever the post-pandemic world looks like. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of innovation and, you know, by necessity, right, which is that, that old cliche, but it's definitely, you can see it happening and it'll be interesting to see when things shift back toward normal if that happens. Last question, 20 years down the road, if you guys are still out there touring, what do you guys want the legacy of this band you've created to be? Because you guys have done a lot of interesting things from putting everything out on your own label, live music focused, all these different albums. I mean, do you have an idea of like what you want people to remember this this band by? I hope people look back and they say, man, for all the millions and millions and millions of dollars they made... Those guys are sure nice guys. It didn't change them one bit. <laughs> They're the same as they were when they did that past, present, future podcast as they are now after they've made. I hope down the road there's uh, there's some payoff and we 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 don't turn into assholes. 
No, I'm just Marty. Kidding. What are you saying in the future? We, Doc. What are you saying in the future? We become assholes. Yeah. <laughs> Ed, what about you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that sounds like a good plan, and I think you know, just that we were a band that was really committed to uh, following the muse and just making the best art we could do. You know, like like Jerry Garcia said about the Grateful Dead. Um, you know, we're like licorice. Not everybody likes us, but the people that really like us, they love us. And I, you know, and I hope that's the case. And I hope. You know, this music's going to be out there forever. So I just, you know, I I can imagine 30, 40, 50 years down the line, someone just one day coming across this and being like, wow, there's this band from like the, the 2020s that's incredible. You know what <laughs> I mean? Just like just like we are with like, you know, if, if I, I find bands all the time that I never heard of or artists and it's just like, oh, this shit's incredible. And it's still just as relevant because it's, it's here, it's present, you know? So that's uh, that's the magic of the music. All right. That's a great place to end. And thank you guys so much for taking the time and congrats on getting this album out there. And for listeners, stick around. You'll hear some tunes. So thank you guys. Yeah, Yeah, man. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And now here's Ed and Gordy performing One More Trip, South by Somewhere, and Black Cat. All right. here's uh, Here's a song called One More Trip that I wrote after a particularly tough year uh, a few years back. And uh, hey, little did I know, 2020 was coming around the corner. One more trip around the sun Another year has come and gone Look around, I don't feel old But the clock keeps swinging like a wrecking ball Set them up, knock them down A hard one gone, got kicked around Get back up and down again Life's a sweet and bitter blend Here's the good times yet to come One more trip around the sun Faster than the day is long On a bullet from a gun Lots of things I should have said Forgive me please, I got a one track head My shotgun rider, my only one One more trip around the sun Standing in the same two shoes It's the same frame looking from a different view Down a twisted path Turned around But there's no way back I can't believe How long it's been Looking back, it didn't feel so quick 
Seems like we're standing still But the clock keeps turning Can't stop the wheel Here's some memories Here's to love One more trip around the sun Here's the memories, here's the love One more trip around the sun I could go way back when The truth was real and I could touch her skin But I'm caught here in the middle of the world Behind the movers and the shakers and the glamorous girls Stuck behind the movers and the shakers and the glamorous girls But they don't give a good damn for me it ain't cool to be blue in the land of the free Said it ain't cool to be blue in the land of the free I'm stuck going south by somewhere North by no one I'm running out of town Missing the fire When I live with desire Well, I know you feel the same way too Got lost in the middle, there was nothing you could do Don't wanna run away, you wanna get back home To my sweet little girls and the ones I love Yeah, to my sweet little girl and the ones I love Don't go inside Running out of town, missing the fire when I live with desire. Pick up my life. Just trying to pick up my life. 
music of my life Yeah, time to pick up Fight till the break of dawn On New Year's Eve A man brought a black cat To the ring to steal his crown Augustinio fought that beast all night Till he finally put the panther in the ground Always know who your people are Don't forget where you're from They'll lift you up and keep your feet on the ground It's a fight till the death and it's done Till it finally called it The legend all but told Down in the garden There's a seven foot statue Of a black cat lined in gold Always know who your people are Don't forget where you're from Lay to rest underneath that statue Is a fight to the death and it's
Thanks for joining us. Past, Present, Future Live is hosted and produced by RJB. The executive producers are Adam Kaplan and Kirsten Cluthy. Production, editing, mixing, and original theme music by Brad Stratton. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. Please visit OsirisPod.com to find more content and deepen your connection to the music you love. 